of the officers thrown on shore unemployed simply because the surprise was too small a frigate for modern requirements. Instead of being reinforced and moved as a whole to a larger ship, such as the thousand-ton, thirty-eight-gun Blackwater that Jack had been promised, the crew was to be scattered, while the influential Captain Irby had been given the Blackwater, and Jack, whose affairs were in a state of horrible confusion, had no certainty of anything but half-pay, of half a guinea a day, and a mountain of debt. These thoughts were interrupted by a cough and a diffident, Captain Aubrey, sir, good day to you. Looking up, he saw a tall, thin man of between thirty and forty, wearing the threadbare uniform of a midshipman. You do not remember me, sir. My name is Hollam, and I had the honour of serving under you in Lively. Of course, Jack had been acting captain of the Lively for a few months at the beginning of the war, and had seen something of a not very efficient midshipman of that name. As far as Jack could remember, there was no vice in Hollam, but there was no merit, either. Long before Jack first met him, a good-humoured board had passed Hollam as fit for the lieutenant's commission, but the commission itself had never appeared. This happened often enough to young men with no particular abilities, or no patron or family to speak for them. But whereas most of these unfortunates bore up after a few years, and either applied for a master's warrant or left the service altogether, Hollam and a good many others like him went on hoping, until it was too late to make any change, so that they remained perpetual mids, perpetual young gentlemen, with an income of about thirty pounds a year when they could find a captain to admit them to his quarter-deck, and nothing at all if they could not, midshipmen having no half-pay. Jack pitied them extremely. Nevertheless, he hardened his heart against the request that was sure to come. A forty-year-old could not possibly fit into his midshipman's berth. Besides, it was evident that Holland was an unlucky man, one that would bring bad luck to the ship. The crew, an intensely superstitious set, would dislike him and perhaps treat him with disrespect. It was clear from Hollam's account of himself that he was finding more and more captains of this opinion. His last ship, Leviathan, had paid off seven months ago, and he'd come out to Gibraltar in the hope either of a death vacancy or a meeting with one of his many former commanders who might be in need of an experienced master's mate. Neither had occurred, and now Hollam was at his last extremity. I'm very sorry to say so, but I'm afraid it's quite impossible for me to find room for you on my quarter-deck, said Jack. In any case, there would be no point in it, since the ship will be paying off in the next few weeks. Even a few weeks would be infinitely welcome, sir, cried Holland with a ghastly sprightliness. I should be happy to sling my hammock before the mast, sir, if you would enter me as able. No, no, Holland, it would not do, said Jack, shaking his head. But, um... Here's a fiper note to be repaid out of your next prize money, if it would prove useful to you. You're very good, sir, said Hollam, clasping his hands behind his back, but I am not what he was not never appeared, his face still retaining something of its artificial sprightly expression, twitched oddly, and Jack dreaded a burst of tears. However, I am obliged for your kind intention. Good day to you, sir. God damn it, said Jack to himself as Holland walked away. This is infernal goddamn blackmail. And then aloud, Mr. Holland, Mr. Holland there! 
he wrote in his pocketbook, tore out the page, and said, Report aboard the surprise for duty before noon, and show this to the officer of the watch. A hundred yards further on he met Captain Sutton of the Namur, a very old friend since they'd been youngsters together in HMS Resolution. Lord Billy, cried Jack, I never thought to see you here. I never saw Namur come in. Where is she? She is blockading Toulon, poor old soul. I was returned for Rye in the by-election. Stopford is running me home in his yacht. Jack congratulated him, and after some words about Parliament, yachts, and acting captains, Sutton said, That was a sad business in Zambra Bay, Jack. You know about it, then? Of course. Your launch found the vice-admiral at Port Mahon, and he sent alacrity away for the C&C off Toulon directly. Oh, I hope she reached him in time. With any luck, he should be able to snap up the big Frenchman. There was something very dirty about that affair, you know, Billy. We sailed straight into a trap, so everyone says. And a returning vittler spoke of a great turmoil in Valletta. Some high civilian cutting his throat? And half a dozen people shot. But it was all at second or third hand. There was no news of my cutter, I suppose. Not that I've heard. But I do know your launch was put aboard the Berwick, since she was to rendezvous with the C&C here. Your former premier was aboard, too, the one who was promoted for your action with the Turk, going home to try to find himself a ship, poor fella. Pullings, said Jack. How happy I shall be to see him. Never was such a first lieutenant. But as for a ship, they shook their heads, knowing that the Navy had more than six hundred commanders, and not half that number of vessels they could command. And after some hesitation, Jack continued, Billy, you know the Admiral far better than I. Is he indeed still so very savage? Pretty savage, said Sutton, and capable of astonishing magnanimity. Sir Francis can be savage, or he can be kind. And there's no telling which. There is no telling which, said Jack Aubrey to himself, as the barge carried him to the flagship the next morning. His signal had not been thrown out at the commander-in-chief's usual unearthly hour, for the Avon had come in at dawn with dispatches, and with mail, including a well-filled sack for the surprise. Her captain's share of the letters made it clear that it was essential that he should get a ship, preferably a frigate with a chance of prize money, to be able to cope with the situation at home. So Sir Francis' opinion of him was now even more important than it had been before. He glanced at Stephen, but Stephen was deep in his own thoughts. He too had letters. One was from his wife, Diana, who had heard an absurd story of his having a public affair with a red-haired Italian woman. It must be absurd, she said, because Stephen could not but know that if he publicly humiliated her before people of their own world, then she would resent it very bitterly indeed. She did not set up as a moralist of any kind, she said, but she would not stomach an open affront from anyone on earth, man, woman, or Freemartin. I shall have to deal with this directly, said Stephen, who knew that his wife, though uncommonly good-looking, was also uncommonly passionate and determined. His other letters were from Sir Joseph Blaine, the Chief of Naval Intelligence, and the first, written officially, congratulated his dear Maturin upon what he described as this brilliant coup, hoping that it would lead to the complete elimination of French agents in Malta. For a long while, English moves in the Mediterranean and on its African and Asian shores had been countered by the French almost before they were made, and it was clear 
that secret information was being sent from Malta to France. The position was so serious that the Admiralty had sent its acting second secretary, Mr. Ray, to look into it. But the coup in question was Maturin's independent discovery of the chief French agent in Valletta, and his principal colleague or accomplice, a senior official in the British administration, a Channel Islander by the name of Boulet. This discovery followed a long and complex operation carried out by Maturin with Laura Fielding's unwitting help, and it was this Laura Fielding, a fellow officer's wife, who was the Italian lady referred to by Diana. But Stephen's success had occurred only a few hours before he was obliged to leave the letter, and he had therefore been compelled to send his information to Mr. Ray and to the Commander-in-Chief for action, Ray being in Sicily for a few days and the Admiral of Toulon. He had done so reluctantly, because the letters necessarily disclosed his status as one of Sir Joseph's colleagues, a status that he preferred to keep secret. So much so, in fact, that he had declined collaborating with Ray or the Admiral's political adviser, Mr. Pocock. Ray was a newcomer to the world of naval intelligence, and Maturin had thought the affair too delicate for inexperienced hands. Furthermore, he understood that Ray did not enjoy Sir Joseph's fullest confidence, since although Ray was certainly able and intelligent, he was also a fashionable, expensive man, much given to high play and not at all remarkable for his discretion. The same objection of inexperience applied to Pocock, though in other ways he made a very good head of the Admiral's local intelligence service. Yet even if both Ray and Pocock had been far more objectionable, Maturin would still have written. His was a very important discovery, and the first of the two men to reach Valletta had only to make use of his exact, detailed information to wipe out the French.